All right, we're going to go ahead and continue on in Galatians 4 this morning, as you know we've been doing. And uh, as we noticed last week, it was a pretty theologically heavy message. And the good news is, is that hasn't changed. This week is going to be uh, just as strong in that department. So once again, buckle up, get your notebooks out. I'll get the recording up right away so John can hear it for a second time. No worries there. And uh, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So last week, you guys remember that Paul spent some time talking about the weakness of the law and, and the reason actually the law came around, if it actually didn't bring righteousness. And, and then we saw that uh, we had been adopted into the family of God as, as adult sons. We're no longer children learning our spiritual ABCs, but we're adult sons in the, in the, in the family of God. And we saw that we're an heir to the promise that was made to Abraham and his offspring. This week, we're going to go ahead and see Paul once again laboring over his relationships with the church that he planted, once again appealing to the relationship that he has with them. We're also going to take a look at the difference between the old and the new covenants, which is always a a good topic. And then we're also going to see that if we choose to keep any one part of the law, we're obligated to keep all of the law. So you guys ready to dive in? All right. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So he says that you guys are moving back to those that by nature are not gods. So we look at the the Galatian church, the Greeks that were there. They were idol worshipers. They worshipped things that were not gods. Basically, an idol is anything that you put in place of God that is not God to worship that thing. You know, and it's easy for us to look at this stuff going on and, and, and we're like, man, how could they be doing such silly things? How can they be worshipped? I mean, they're worshipping statues and and wooden figurines and animals and the stars. And I mean, we're like, that is just crazy. How could they be that ignorant, that silly to be worshipping stuff that isn't God? But let's take a moment right now to imagine another culture. Imagine that we could be a fly on the wall in this culture. And we're up on the wall and we're looking and they see that they have a room in in their dwelling And they all gather around this room to worship something in the center of the room. Matter of fact, this thing is so important that they take all the furniture in the room and it's gathered in such a way that everybody who's in there can sit and have an unobstructed view of this inanimate object that does nothing but make noise and flicker lights. Or imagine for a moment you could be a fly on the wall in in another room and you see that it's just covered in these these metal devices, these contraptions that have these beautiful tapestry and canvases and, and types of cloth hung over it. And they're always trying to get more. They're always trying to get the the nicest ones. They're trying to elevate their status by these things. Or imagine for a moment in this culture, they, they have a room dedicated for this big metal beast. They do nothing but offer sacrifices of time and energy and, and, and stuff to it. Matter of fact, this particular thing, if you were to, ins- to say anything about it, it might insult them because they, they use these things to elevate their status. Now the truth is, when we say this stuff vaguely, it even sounds kind of silly then, but the truth is, if you think about it, it's not much different than our culture today when that, that inanimate object with, with the lights and making sounds is just our TV as we sit around and give it more attention than God. Or all the clothes hanging in our closet that we always try to get the next best one, the shoes, the clothes that are so important to elevate our status that we we actually, you know, there are people that won't shop at lower-end stores because somehow they think it's beneath them. They've elevated these clothes and the status to such a high view in their life. Or the people that, that have their cars, that they dedicate their time and energy and resources to their cars, that they, they basically worship them because they are defined by their vehicle. So we think, man, how can they be so silly? But the truth is, we see the exact same thing. There's plenty of idols in the American culture right now. 
But the more pressing thing that Paul wants to bring up is how can they turn back to such things after they've come to know God or rather be known by God? See, the thing about idols is we can elevate their position. We can think of them more than that they are. But they'll always be inanimate. They're always going to be an object, no matter what it is. Whether it's a TV or whether it's a a golden figurine, it's always inanimate. We can know those things to an extent, but those things can never know us. We can never be known by them. He says that now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless things, the elementary principles of this world? Basically, like we learned last week, they're, going, they're trying to, to, to go back to those elementary and spiritual ABCs. They're trying to reintroduce the law, which was the tutor. They're going backwards, and he's, he doesn't get it. How can you know God and be known by Him and then want to go back to these, to these things? And then he goes on to talk about they're observing days and months and seasons and years. Basically, they were going back to the different days of the law, the different ceremonies that, that, that had to be completed. If you were going to follow the law, you had to do these things. So the question we ask ourselves as Christians today If that's the case, is the Christian wrong to celebrate Christmas or Easter? Because we see Paul saying, you're observing days, months, and seasons, and years, and he's he's rebuking them for it, but then we go, wait a minute, we celebrate those things. But the reality is, is that there's no sin for the Christian to celebrate days as long as they're celebrated in a godly manner. In Romans 14, 5 through 8, it says, One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the days observes it in honor of the Lord, but the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So the thing that we see here is the motivation is what, is what matters. If we are celebrating a day to somehow gain favor with God, which is what is basically happening when they were celebrating the laws or the days because of the law, they were doing that because they had to remain in right standing with God. They were celebrating these holidays to fulfill the law in their lives, right? Does that make sense? But as Christians, when we celebrate the holidays, when we celebrate Christmas and Easter, if we do that in such a way that we're honoring God, that we are giving glory to Him, we're celebrating what He's done in our life, nothing wrong with that. But if you're celebrating Christmas or Easter because you think that somehow you're going to gain favor with God, if it's something that's on your spiritual checklist, then you're wrong. It's the motivation that matters. As long as we are giving thanks for the grace and love and honoring Him in the days that we are celebrating, we're not in sin and we're not reverting to the spiritual infancy that Paul is talking about. But ultimately, this, this movement backwards is what concerned Paul. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul cared about his churches that he planted. And he feared that if they turned away from God's grace and back towards the law, then all of his labor in them was in vain, that he had, he had preached to them, he had ministered to them, they accepted Christ, and then they began to walk away from him. And he begins to wonder, have I, have I ministered to you guys for no reason? Was it just something you picked up for a moment and then thrown away? So then as we continue on in Galatians 4, 12 through 15, it says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So now Paul is kind of making a switch in his tone. He's just spent the last... uh, few chapters or the last chapter kind of rebuking them for what they're dealing with for for taking that step back 
But now he's, he's not rebuking them anymore. He wants to embrace them once again. You see, Paul didn't write this letter to the Galatians to say, you know what? This is what you deserve. I'm done with you guys. I gave you a shot and I'm walking away. That wasn't the attitude in the heart of Paul. Matter of fact, as, I, as I've talked to you many times we've gone over Paul's letters, I, I always want to have the attitude that Paul had. That even when people were, were disregarding him and basically telling him what he taught was nothing and walking towards something else, he still loved them. He, didn't, he wasn't like, you know what? You guys do what you want. You'll get what you deserve. But he, he loved them. He wanted to draw them back in. He wanted them to have that salvation once again. And he says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for also I have become as you are. Now this verse right here has been looked at in a couple ways, a couple different interpretations. The first one uh, that I see is that he's saying, you know what, guys? Become as I am, not under the law, under grace, because for I also have become as you are. Basically, what what he could be saying is that, Neither of us are under the law anymore. I became as you are, not, not under the law, but under grace. Now you guys become as I am again, under grace. Get away from the law. And then the other way this is often interpreted, which is probably the more accurate way because it kind of fits the rest of the passage, is, is the idea in Greek culture is that the teacher was on equal terms as a student. They were, they were friends. They weren't just positions high and low but they were actually friends and one of the 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 ways that they were viewed as equal they would say become as i am because i am as you are saying that even though i'm your spiritual father you're my spiritual child we are still equal we are still friends paul is appealing to the relationship that he had with them basically saying guys we're equal we love each other you know where he's appealing to that sense of 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 closeness that they had He continues on and says, you did me no wrong. He's basically saying that, guys, what you've done is not causing me any harm. You've done me no wrong in this. When you've turned away from the grace that was given you in Christ, you know, it doesn't really affect me. I'm not telling you this stuff because somehow my ego gets puffed up if you guys turn back to Christ. Or I'm getting spiritual points in heaven if you guys turn back to Christ. You guys turning away doesn't cause me any harm at all. The only people that are getting injury are you. If you turn away from Christ, you're the only one that gets hurt. You see, our faith can't get somebody into heaven. We can't believe for our children. We can't believe for our family members or our friends. But on the same token, somebody else's lack of faith is not going to tear you out of the arms of Jesus either. The fact that they were turning away from what Paul had preached didn't make Paul any less saved, didn't make Paul any less correct in what he was preaching. It didn't make the gospel any less true. It didn't harm him, but it did harm those that are turning away, that were walking away from grace. And then he begins to remind him of their first meeting. Once again, he's appealing to the relationship. He says, you know, it's because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. It appears that Paul actually didn't intend to minister to the, to the, the, the cities of Galatia at the time. That wasn't his first intention. But some form of injury, some form of sickness or whatever caused him to stop in Galatia. And while he was there, he went ahead and preached them. He had to stop over there anyway. He was, he was stuck because of the sickness. So he decided to preach to them. But we also get the impression that whatever Paul had, and we don't know what he had, but whatever he had, apparently, it would have been possible for them to see Paul and run away, basically, to scorn him, to despise him, to hate him. Oftentimes in those days, people having some sort of physical problem was, was considered basically scorned by the gods. You must be doing something wrong if, if that's going on in your life. Matter of fact, I've, I've even seen that in today's society where somebody gets sick and, or something happens and oh, that must be because of sin in your life. That's just ridiculous. But people think that way. Especially back then, if you were going through some stuff, somebody was mad at you. So they could have turned against Paul. They could have not given him the time of day. 
But instead they did. They didn't despise him. They didn't scorn him. They received Paul and his message as if it was from God himself. Not from man, but from God. Matter of fact, it says that they received him so well that they would have gone so far as to make an incredible sacrifice for him. The words that are used, it says that I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Some have argued that that uh, this is saying, oh, I, Paul must have had an eye problem. That must have been his sickness. But the truth is, this is just an expression. It's kind of like us today saying, I'd give you my leg or I'd give you my arm if I could. Basically, it's saying that I would do anything for you. They, were just, they, they loved him so much that they were committed to him so much that they would have gouged out their own eye and given it to him if it would have made a difference. That's all that's trying to be said here. So Paul wants to know what happened to that spirit and attitude that you had. You guys were with me. Our relationship was so strong that you would have done anything for me. And now all of a sudden you don't trust and believe what I'm trying to tell you. What I've said, you've been turned away. Somebody has deceived you. You remember that the entire first part of this letter is Paul defending his position and authority as an apostle. At one point, this was their attitude towards him, and now all of a sudden they're questioning his authority. He wants to know what happened, what's, what's led you astray. Basically, somebody had come in and engaged the Galatian church and tried to lead them astray from the, the real gospel as well as damage as Paul's reputation. So he goes on in Galatians 4, 16-19, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. This is an interesting question, especially to me as a pastor. It says, have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? You know, we live in a society today where people just want their ears tickled. Basically, they go to church for, for the music. They go to church because they might have some cool programs. Or they, they go to church to check off their spiritual good deed for the day. But they don't want somebody up on the pulpit telling them that their lifestyle is opposed to God. Who are you, pastor, to tell me what's right and wrong? They don't want to be told that they should give their life to God, not just mentally, but physically as well. They don't want to be told that their time and money should be devoted to God. They don't want to be challenged in those areas. They don't want to hear the hard messages. And they definitely don't want to be approached by the pastor if they have an area of their life that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be improved on. No matter that it's done with genuine care for the individual. I know when I was going to the uh, uh, the Tucson church, there were people that I always encouraged to come to church that I that I pressed on them to get things straightened out and come. and And a lot of times there was there's a lot of pushback from that because people don't want to be told they need to be in church or that that what they're doing isn't right. That they should be fully involved and fully commit. But all I ever want, I wish they could see my heart. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't somehow getting benefited if you dedicated your life to God. I, didn't, I don't somehow get brownie points or anything. It, it's, it's my concern for them. You know, people get upset when you're always talking to them about God. You're always inviting them into church. But it's for their own good. We, it's because we care about them that we, we love them. And we understand that if they would give their life fully to God, that they would have something that they're missing right now. They would have that hope, that peace, that love, that strength, that victory that they're missing. It's because we care about them. But the question is always asked when we tell the truth then, what then? Have I become your enemy by telling the truth? That was Paul's question. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm doing it because I love you and I want the best for you. I'm not doing it because I want to be known as, as the greatest preacher on all the land. I'm doing it because I want you to get into heaven. I want you to have the wholeness that comes with Christ. And when you're mixing this other stuff in, you're missing it. 
And then he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. He's talking about the Judaizers, the, the people that were coming in after him, trying to, to sneak the law back into Christianity. He's saying, they've come in to make much of you, but for no good purpose. In other words, they came in and made a big deal over the, over the Galatians. They pumped them up. They were trying to butter them up. But not what he says for no good purpose, he means that they weren't doing it for you. They were just trying to elevate themselves, to esteem themselves by getting you to follow them. And basically, they said they, wanna, they wanted to shut you out. They wanted to shut you out from Paul, to shut them out from Paul, and they wanted to shut them out from the gospel. Instead, to be reliant on them. Because it says that they wanted them to make much of them. Basically, it's saying that they made a big deal about you to turn you away so that you could lift them up, so that you could elevate them. It wasn't for a good purpose. It was for their, for their pride that they were going after this stuff. And he says, but <clears throat> by contrast, Paul did it a little bit differently. He says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Paul made a big deal out of him, but it was for a good purpose. It wasn't to lift Paul up, but it was to, to minister to them that they would have the brand new life. He did it in genuine love for the people. And he says, and not only when I'm present with you, I wasn't just making a big deal out of you when I'm with you, but I, I continue to make much of you right now. I continue to pray for you and lift you up. Matter of fact, I care about you so much that I'm taking the time to write this letter to you to help you get back on the right path. Even being far away as Paul is right now, his heart still yearns and aches for them. His heart still loves them. And he says, but now I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you again. You know, he ministered to them before and he went through the pains of childbirth once before as he led them to the Lord the first time. But basically, they've retreated back into the womb again. He says now he's going through those same pains, those same difficulties, wanting them to give their life, basically to be born again, once again. And he says he won't be at ease until then. In Galatians 4, 20-23, it says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written about Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Paul says, you know what, I wish I could be with you guys right now. He says, I wish I could be with you right now personally so I could minister, so you could see my heart. That I didn't just have to write it in letters. He says, I wish I could change my tone. That was one of the things, I don't know if you've read before, that they criticized Paul of, uh, in other letters, is that he was strong in his letters, but when he was with them, he was much more, it was much softer. Because he loved them and they could, they could see his heart. I know for me, I've started to write people. And I start writing them out a letter and I recognize that my intentions, my emotions, my, are not coming through in the words. Have you ever written somebody something and you, you realize that if you write it this way, matter of fact, even when I text you guys all the time, I'll say stuff and then I'm wondering, I hope this came across how I meant it. And, uh, you know, they're not just offended and upset because when you say it in person, it sounds a lot different than in, than in words on a paper. And there's times that I've been writing and I've, I've just picked up the phone because there's no way I could ex- express in words what I was trying to say. And Paul's having the same issue. He says, I'm perplexed about you. I'm not sure what to do. I want to get this across to you, but I wish I could be there in person so that it, that it came across the way that I wanted it to come across in genuine love instead of just looking like a, a letter that's just wagging my finger at you, basically. He says that, I wish I could be with you and change my tone. But the reality is he couldn't. He had to send this letter. So he says, all right, well, basically then, Tell me those of you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? As he continues to minister to the Galatians, he basically returns to the law again. He says, you know what? These people that want to lead you astray, they want to introduce the law into your Christianity. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the law one more time. 
He says, you Galatians who want to be under the law again, have you even read it? Have you ever even took a look through it? So he goes on to talk about Abraham and his two sons. So Abraham, as you know, had two sons. But only one of them was the son of promise. That was Isaac. And he had one son that was the son of the, the slave woman, which was Ishmael. And Ishmael was born to Abraham's slave, Hagar. 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 And basically, Ishmael was the product of what happens when man tries to basically do the job of God. As we know that, that Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. And God said that you were going to have uh, like this, the sands of the earth, like the stars in the sky. That's how many are going to be your offspring. But he didn't have a son. So after a while, because we know that, that, that Abraham waited for 25 years for his promise to come. But after a while, he says, man, it's been a few years. God hasn't, maybe I need to do something. So Sarah says, well, why don't you go ahead and, and take my slave, go into her, and, and, and they had Ishmael. But Ishmael was, was the son of a slave woman. It wasn't the son of, of Sarah who was a free woman. And it was basically what happens when, when, when God tells us something's going to happen and we're like, don't worry about it, God, I got this. But the other, Isaac was born to Sarah, the free woman. It was, he was a miracle and a gift of God. Sarah was barren. She was unable to have children. There was no doubt that God was moving in this situation. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah can't have kids. But this was God's doing, and God's doing alone. It says the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, born according to what Abraham could do. But the son of the free woman was born through the promise completely of God. And he continues on in Galatians 4, 24-27. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, for it is written Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So one, we know that for something to be allegorical, it's, it basically has a hidden meaning. It's expressed one way, meant to mean something else. And Paul says that, that these two women can be, can be used to express that same thing. They're expressing two real women with real children, but it's actually meaning that these women are representative of the two covenants. And we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was the law given to Moses. The New Covenant is the law of grace given through Jesus by faith. And here we see the law and grace are contrasted by Hagar and Sarah. Hagar is, is representative of the Old Covenant. She was a slave and she bore children for slavery. Ishmael was born not out of God's will, but man's will and man's own accomplishments. Mount Sinai is where the law was given to Moses. It says that one is from Mount Sinai. That's, that's the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And basically, she represents Jerusalem under the law. They were in slavery to sin. They were enslaved to the law. But Sarah, she represents the new covenant. She was a free woman. She wasn't uh, Abraham's slave. She was his wife. She was free. And Isaac was born out of the will and power of God. He was the promised child. He was God doing a miracle in their life. And she represents Jerusalem above, which is under grace. And is free, not under the law. And we are under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. That means that, that we're born of Sarah. Then he goes on to talk about the, the barren one. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud. This is a, a quote from the Old Testament, and it's referring to the Gentiles versus the Israelites. The barren one refers to the Gentiles, and the one with the husband, the one betrothed to God, refers to the Jewish people. And because of the new covenant, the Gentiles have been included. We're not included because of the law. We didn't come in under the law or added to that, but the Gentiles were added under grace. 
What time is it? In Galatians 4, 28-31, it says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, like we said, Isaac was a child of promise. And Abraham and Sarah should not have been able to have a baby. I mean, at this point, it is just biologically impossible for them to conceive. Matter of fact, in Romans 4.19, speaking of Abraham, it says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Isaac was a promise and a gift of God. And it was his doing alone. And Abraham and Sarah could make no claim to this miracle. There was, you know, the Ishmael, Abraham had a part in. But in this case, there was, it was impossible for them to have children. And the same is true for us in our lives when we talk about salvation and righteousness and holiness. We can make no claim to that miracle that took place in our life when we were made brand new as we received Jesus Christ by faith. We are saved and we're redeemed, we're remade, we're holy, we're pure and righteous, and just like Isaac, it is only because of the gift and grace of God. In Ephesians 2, 8-9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And he says, Just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So basically what Paul is saying is that, you know what, Ishmael persecuted Isaac back then, and the same thing is happening now. These, 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 these Christian Jews that have come in and said that you need to follow the law, they're once again persecuting the, children, the free children of God. In Genesis 21, 8-13, it says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. We begin to see, Ishmael begins to persecute Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of this boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. You know, many times when we try to, to get in the way and do things for God, all it does is cause pain in the long run. At this point, God approved of casting out Ishmael. He wasn't the son of the promise. He wasn't the promise that God had made. It was, it was what Abraham had done on his own. And Paul's saying that, you know what, the pattern is being repeated so also it is now ishmael persecuted isaac and now these these children of the slaves these people that are still under the law are trying to persecute you who should be free and just like then we shouldn't invite those kind of people into our lives he's saying you guys shouldn't be letting these people into your life and speaking into your life they need to be cast out just like was done then cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman we are completely separated from those under the law. And we will inherit the promises. And the reality is, if we want to slip back into the law, we exclude ourselves from the promises of God. In Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ had set the Galatians free. And Paul implored them to remain free. Stand firm. Don't be drawn back in to what you've already been made free from. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Anybody else thought that's kind of a weird phrase? But the reality is, is that Christ set us free so that we could be free. He didn't free us from the law to be enslaved to something else. We are free to be free. Free to live the life God has called us to live finally free from the bondage of sin and death. 
And if we've been set free, we need to make sure that we don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. Don't go backwards. Don't attempt to work your way into the favor of God because all that does is lead to bondage and sin. And this is the same for us as well, not just the Galatian church, but for us as well. We need to make sure that we don't get slipped back into those old things that had control of us in our lives. We need to make sure that we're not trying to mix law and grace and trying to somehow accomplish something to be right with God. And we also need to be, not be tempted to be drawn back into those things that have ever been placed before God. Work, TV, sports, clothes, your house, your cars, money, all those things that we could place in front of God. We need to stand firm against anything that would attempt to steal our freedom. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, and then in verse 14 it says, Stand firm, therefore. The enemy wants to draw us back into bondage, but we're called to, to do all that we can to stand firm and then do it. Stand firm and resist what the enemy is trying. That's what the, the enemy here is working to try to, to pull these people from grace. And the truth is, as we'll see now, that if, if he can do that, it's very effective. Galatians 5, 2 through 6 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The reality is is that Christ plus anything equals nothing. When we attempt to earn our way into heaven, when we attempt to earn our way into the good graces of God, earn our way into righteousness, we're effectively rejecting Jesus. In this case, Paul's speaking of circumcision. As was being required by those who were telling the Gentiles that basically they need to become a Jew and follow the law in order to finally become a Christian. And apparently it's pretty important because Paul says that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. If he says it twice, it's pretty important. Basically, he's he's making it very clear that if you accept any part of the law, you're obligated to keep the entire law. You can't just pick and choose. If you want to live according to the law, you need to live your life perfectly. The problem with this is that it's impossible for anyone to keep the law themselves without some point of failure. Matter of fact, to this point, they've already failed. They've already obligated themselves to, the, to the, the death that comes with sin. And it says, if they seek to be justified by the law, then they have rejected Christ. Christ will be no advantage to you if that's what your measure, your yardstick is. If that's how you're trying to become right with God, then Christ is no advantage to you. You've basically rejected Him and you've fallen away from grace. Said you're severed from Christ. That's kind of a scary thought to me. That when we try to introduce the law back into it, when we try to introduce works back into it, we're actually rejecting Christ. We're severing ourselves from We're falling away from grace. You can't have the law and grace at the same time. It's a one or the other thing. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't have them both. It's one or the other. If it's by works, then it's by works. If it's by grace, then it's by grace. But it can't be both. We can't mix and match. And if you choose for it to be by works, you've got some serious problems because you can't meet the requirements. So then we have to ask, does this mean that we're free to sin as we trust in Jesus, as the law is not applicable? And the answer is no. It's a resounding no. Because first, in Jesus, we're a brand new creation. 
We're not longer who we are. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? All who are in Christ are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, or the old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We're new creations in Christ. Second, we were once in bondage to sin. Sin had a hold over our lives. But now we're slaves to righteousness. Romans 6 18 says, And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Basically, whatever you're a slave to is what controls your actions. If you're a slave to sin, sin tells you what to do. If you're a slave to righteousness, righteousness controls what you do. And finally, God didn't change His mind. He is still against sin. The truth is that the law is still the yardstick. That's how we have to be to be right with God. What Jesus did is fulfilled that for us. Basically, we recognize that we didn't meet the requirements of the law. Our death was required. But Jesus died for us. It didn't change the requirements of the law. All He did was fulfill the legal obligation. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. God didn't say, this is what is required, and then later change his mind when Jesus came. The truth is, is that is what it is to live a godly and holy and righteous life. The difference is, is where before we were a slave to sin and it was impossible to live that way, now we're free in Christ. We're free to live that way. And then finally we see him reiterate that it is faith and faith alone that causes righteousness. For through by the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you're a Jew, it's okay that you're circumcised. Put your faith in Jesus. If you're a Gentile, it's okay that you're not circumcised. Put your faith in Jesus. That's where righteousness comes from. Not by following the law, not by being circumcised so that you have followed all the rules of the law, but it's by faith and faith alone. In Galatians 5, 7-12, it says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will, be, that you will take in no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul saying, you know what? You started out well. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were doing great. I, you received the message from God that I had for you. You were doing amazing. What is going on? But what happened was that someone came along and led them astray. Somebody came along to try to lead them from the path. And Paul wants to let them know that, hey, they're not from Jesus. They're not speaking the truth. He says, who hindered you? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. They're coming and telling you stuff, but it's not from Jesus. Matter of fact, you remember we, we began this letter in, in Galatians 1.8 saying that if we even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This isn't from God. This is from somebody else. And then he begins to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's saying is that if you let that one person come in, it can multiply and spread like cancer through the whole church. We have to be careful who we're letting minister into our lives. Jesus used the same parable in Matthew 16, 6. He said, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The point is this, be careful who you let speak into your life. Because even though they seem to be such a small part and have such a small influence in comparison to others who might have influence in your life, they can actually cause a great deal of effect and trouble in your life as it begins to sway your way of thinking. We need to, when we hear people, we need to compare it to the Word of God to make sure that it is accurate and that we're not being led astray. Because that little bit of leaven can really lead you astray as it's done to the Galatians church. But Paul still has confidence in them. He's still praying for them. He says, you know what? I believe that you guys are going to come back around, that you're going to take the right view, that you're going to believe what God says and not what these, these, these other people are coming into your life. 
He says, you know what? I believe that you're going to turn back to the gospel and not be caught up and tainted by these other so-called gospels, as Paul said, that are really not even gospels. They're completely something else. Matter of fact, we just saw that, that we're severed from Christ when we get wrapped up in these other gospels. This is kind of, this is important stuff. And then we also see a strange line here that says, but if brothers, I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Apparently at this time, that not only were they teaching circumcision in the law, but they were, they were also saying, that you know, even Paul's preaching this stuff. Even Paul's saying this stuff. He says, guys, if I'm still saying that stuff, why am I being persecuted for? for if, if I was agreeing with them, they wouldn't be persecuting me. The truth is, they're probably saying this kind of stuff because Paul did take Timothy to be circumcised. As we've been going through this stuff about circumcision, did that come to anybody's mind? Because the whole first part was Titus didn't be, wasn't compelled to be circumcised, but if you read the book of Acts, in Acts 16.3 it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. that come to anybody's mind? That seems kind of contradictory. But the truth is, is we're dealing with two different situations. Paul says if you get circumcised, then you have to uphold the entire law. But the reality is, is it's not the act of circumcision that's the problem. It's the following the law that was the problem. He's telling these guys, if you accept circumcision as a requirement of the law, then you're obligated to keep the entire law. The people leading the Galatians astray were requiring circumcision in order to fulfill the law so that they could become Christians. But Timothy, we see some differences in Timothy versus Titus. One, Timothy was only half Greek. His mother was Jewish and he was raised as a Jew and probably the only reason he wasn't circumcised as a young child was because of his Greek father at the time. But the major difference is that Timothy wasn't circumcised to fulfill the law. We go back to Acts 16.3. It says that he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Timothy was with Paul to preach to the Jews. He was trying to minister the gospel to them. And the reality is, is that they would have never listened to Timothy if he wasn't circumcised, if he wasn't where he was supposed to be as a Jew, they would have never heard what he had to say. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I, by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Timothy wasn't circumcised to fulfill the law. Timothy, that had nothing to do with the law for Timothy. It had everything to do with becoming as they were so he could minister to them. When we were in Africa preaching to the pastors over there, I hadn't yet been ordained. But I was over there ministering to these groups of pastors. We were training them. And one night we're sitting there and they called me over, me and and Pastor Abe. Now he wasn't ordained at the time either. And they said, look guys, we're going to refer to you guys as Pastor Wayne and Pastor Abe from here on out. It's going to be on your name tag, Pastor Wayne and Pastor Abe. This isn't your ordination. This isn't, you know, this isn't that part of it. But the reality is, is that if, if you're not considered at that level, these guys won't hear anything that you have to say. They're not going to they're not going to receive your ministering to them. If they think that you're some, you know, Joe Schmo off the off the street just coming in here with no no title or no uh, credentials or anything, they're just not going to hear you. So what did we do? Slapped on a name tag and called us pastor so that way we could minister to those men. And then as soon as I came back, the name tag got taken off until I was finally ordained. But the same, we become all things to all people so we can minister to them. And that's, that's what was happening with Timothy. He wasn't fulfilling the law. He was doing what he had to so that he could minister to these people. 
He was making a sacrifice of himself to be able to minister to them. So that's probably, you know, Paul, Timothy was circumcised to minister to them, but that's probably why they were saying Paul was preaching circumcision. But he's like, you know what, guys? You got it all wrong. And if I was preaching circumcision, why are they persecuting me for not? Paul never preached that circumcision was necessary for salvation. It was, it was not necessary to follow the law to become a Jew, to be a Christian. And the truth is that the people that were saying he did, he didn't really have a, a high opinion of them. He says, I wish that those who said he would emasculate themselves. If they want to cut somebody, let them cut themselves. Paul wasn't teaching that. Does that make sense to everybody? Did I explain that well enough? And, and we're, we're on the same page there? And then we're going to end up in here in Galatians 5, 13 through 15. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We, like the Galatians, are called to freedom. We are free from the law. We're free from sin and bondage. We are free to live the life that God has called us to live without the pull and strain of sin and unrighteousness. And if we will live our lives out of love, then we're living that freedom out. Because it says that all of the law can be summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to love your neighbor, you're living out the law. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie to them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to murder them. And you're not going to covet what is theirs. And if you love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, then nothing will stand between you and God. He will always be elevated higher than everyone else. That's why it says that if we live from love, then we are fulfilling the law. Even though we're not, we're not obligated to the law on this, legally, in the sense that we have to make the payment should we fail it. We still need to live out of love. And in doing so, we'll actually meet the requirements of the law. But he says if we don't live out of love, if you bite and devour one another, the consequences are destruction and consumption of one another. When we live out of love, we build each other up. We encourage one another. When someone has a success we are joyful with them. But if we're not living out of love, we, we consume one another. When somebody has a success, instead of celebrating with them, we just become jealous and think that they're not worth it and we deserved it and not them. We need to live out of love for one another and not consume one another. Amen? So let's be a people who exercise our freedom in Christ's living from love. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and stand to our feet.